Hello, uh, and welcome back to the Wokademia podcast. Uh, today, I'm very happy to be joined by uh, Johnny Butler. He's one of our most distinguished professors here at the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the um, J. Marion West Chair for Constructive Capitalism in the Graduate School of Business, and he teaches in the management department, along with a number of other places at the university. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he's, yeah, like I said, he's one of our, one of our best, and he's here to talk to us a little bit about uh, critical race theory and how it interacts with um, some aspects of business and entrepreneurship. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here, yeah. Professor, and uh, you've been doing a good job. And uh, I'm happy to talk about my research. And, and you know, uh, basically, I see uh, this the critical race theory as the methodological kind of issue. That is, how do you study stuff? And let me just give you some background on how I was uh, drawn in to start doing an analysis. Uh, I'm with Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center. And, and we sort of took on 1619 uh, because we felt that um, um, America might have been birthed right when slavery was here but it didn't give the entire story of, of america and what, what what black americans have done since the inception of the country so if you really think about what we're trying to do and i'm just going to give you sort of a, an academic analysis but i'm gonna try to keep it you know uh very very broadly so if you think about studying things um you can think about studying things in a box so for example, Newton's concept of the universe was very, very boxy. That is nothing else could, could come to play. But what critical race theory does, it takes away all of the accomplishments of black Americans since the exception of the country. And then they have a concept called marginalized people. Well, when I do the analysis of marginalized people and in innovation and entrepreneurship, it is the marginalized people who have made America great. So let me, let me talk about that, how that interacts. So if you really if you really don't pay attention to it, then critical race theory has a harmful effect on innovation and entrepreneurship because everything is seen in the context of a box. In this case, with critical race theory, you, 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 you're blaming white America, whoever that might be, as people assimilated into white America on everything related to black America. But then when you go back and look at all of the accomplishments of black America, right? Look at all the, the private universities, the private high schools. The question is, how can you account for that? So let's let's open up the box and, and, and talk about some of the major uh, foundations of critical race theory and how it relates to, to where we are today. You know, when we when we when psychologists and sociologists and economists study study inequality. Uh, the whole idea is two things. One can be at the individual level. So they might, they might say, are you, are you anti-Black? Are you anti-Semitic, right? Are you anti-whatever? And the other thing is what we call it at the structural level. And that is the idea that isms, in this case, racism, is geared in the very, very structure of the institutions and cannot be changed. Actually, critical race theory came from the German critical theory stuff. And it also comes out of uh, disciplines such as sociology and economics called structuralism. And what that means is this, the very, very first concept, I wrote a paper in the 1970s 
professor before you were born. <laughs> Almost. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Probably. It was called Institutional Racism, My Perspective on Intellectual Voting. It was the same concept. And the idea is that it moves through the institutions and nothing can be done about it. It is embedded in the concept of the institutions. Well, that takes away all individual kinds of initiative. It takes away agencies. But when you look at the data, what does it mean? Let me make a general statement as a, as a professor might say, might do is this. When, when groups react in a certain kind of way against isms, in this case, racism, the more prevalent the racism was in America, the better off blacks are now today. I'm gonna to restate that, right? And we could go to Japanese Americans on the West Coast. We can go to white Jews in Europe. But let's stick with black Americans. Why do I say that in the history of America, wherever racism was the strongest, the blacks are better off? Well, let me just take you through that. I'm a Southern born myself. I'm from, born in New Orleans. And I can tell you this, I was raised in the best high school. I was raised around Dillard University. I was raised around Xavier University with nothing but positive kinds of role models. Because what happens then, <clears throat> if you build institutions that serve the next generation because of the racism, then you're better off, okay? Now we know in the black population, some went to major cities, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with going to Chicago. Nothing wrong with going to Detroit. Nothing wrong with going to Milwaukee. But when the economy fell apart, they didn't have a system of education. So right now, 70% of all black college graduates are from what they call the segregated South. But let me tell you something, Professor. Underneath segregation was a homophilous system of achievement that still exists, okay? It exists because you go outside of the structures and create new structures. Let me give you some other examples outside of race. When Stanford went and said to, to Harvard, I want to put a school over here, they said, no, we don't need you. He went back and built Stanford, okay? When Bobby Jones went to the PGA and said, I want to do a PGA tournament and my new course in Augusta, they said, we can't do that. He created the Masters. When Duke University, when, when old man Duke went up to Princeton and said, can I have a wing that's called Duke? No, and he went home to build Duke, okay? Throughout the South, when they said, well, you cannot go to these schools, they created their own schools. Now, they took a whole lot of court cases to say, you know, segregated schools are bad, but all of the data that we have now, we have a hundred years of data. We have all these books, right? To show where in terms of education, in terms of achievement, the only big difference was, you know, we were encouraged to go to Northern schools to that. My brother went to Indiana University, right? Now I did go to LSU, but I went to Northwestern. I was in the first group of blacks that desegregated LSU. But the point is, Whenever there's a lot of isms, right? In this case, racism, if the group turns and creates different kinds of structures, you must give them credit for that. And we're right now at the point of saying, okay, uh, those schools were not necessarily quote inferior as related by the court, right? So when you have critical race theory, it can't account for all of this achievement. 
It, has, it is no way to account for all of the graduates that finished from Hampton University or Tougaloo University, right? Or Morehouse College, right? Or Dillard University or Xavier University. So if you concentrate on that, then what happens is you don't do anything for yourself and it takes away all of the agency. So you become just concentrating on what whites have done, what whites have done. Well, I can say this, uh, Professor, and I've never said this <laughs> live before. By the time I was 18, I was looking down on most white Southerners. Okay? Because I didn't care what color you were, right? I'm a fourth generation college graduate. I wanted to know in, in, my, in, in my territory, not your color, but what you have done. So critical race theory does a, does a bad job of accounting for the success and marginalized people. Let's move away from black, white, right? In the, in the European tradition, the most marginalized group is the Jewish group. They're also one of the most economically secure group. If you look at the white Mormons, they, they ran them out of every city in America. They ended up in Salt Lake City and created one entrepreneurial kind of activity, right? Very, very economically secure. They have a historical black college, but we call it BYU. It's called a, <laughs> a historical Mormon college, right? If you look at the Japanese on the West Coast, who were put in concentration camps, came out and concentrated on this model of innovation and entrepreneurship and creating things, then that was the springboard for the future generations. So you gotta be careful to let people put you in a box. I have to be careful. I have to realize that my heroes are my father and my grandfather in Boogity, Washington, right? And it was the family's duty to make sure of the excellence for the next generations. So the critical race theory does not take into account the things that people do, and they want to put everybody in a box. So somebody was talking about, well, what's happened to the Chinese and the Indians? Well, you go to Silicon Valley, 50% of those companies are now Chinese and Indians, and they don't care what kind of box <laughs> you, try to, you try to put them in. So that's my story. <laughs> How to do your calculus. <laughs> it's about all that stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's, that, uh, that's a really great perspective because you know the 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 critical race theorists talk a lot about the narratives and they want to pitch this narrative of almost i mean i guess you would say that they're promoting the narrative of failure and you're bringing in data it's like that's not it but you know and why are they you know why are they so invested in this narrative of of failure do you do you have any insight to what what makes them want this so much well, well first of all the historical facts are wrong okay mm -hmm. So, so, for example, they might say that uh, the American Revolution was fought because they were, the British were afraid that, that uh, black soldiers would fight on the side of the British and, and they wanted to preserve slavery. Well, by the time uh, those decisions were made, and I have a book on, uh, on, uh, uh, that looks at organization science and, and, and blacks in the military, right? Those decisions had already been made before the British offered, I mean, the war had already started under, under, under President uh, uh, Washington. Uh, before the British offered that kind of uh, deal to, to Black, that is, if you fight on the side of the British, right, then we would give you your freedom. So, so the very, very premise of 1619 is wrong. It's also wrong because, as we say at the Woodson Center, just because the country was birthed and it had slavery cannot account for all of the achievement that has happened in the country. And it really can't account for everybody that's trying to make it to America to do great things. Right. So I mean, we look there's at, a lot of places that were birthed with slavery, right? And there's not a lot right. of America. 
<laughs> right. You know, if we look at African immigration today and what they're doing in entrepreneurship and, and the education of their kid, by the way, the, the Ibu from Nigeria, one of the most educated groups in America and in Europe based on this model. Right. So it is it is the flavor of today with no data. Mm-hmm. You have to have the data. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was looking at a, at a video. Somebody sent me a video that was done in Germany, not America, about the millions of, of, um, of Black Americans who are millionaires in America, mm-hmm. where critical race theory do not want to hear that, right? So what happens then, if, it's ba- if the data are not there to, to support it, and if you go on and you cannot interpret history, right? And if you can't see change and how change changes, right? And that, and that, that's the problem that they have. The other thing they have is what I said earlier, right? When you react to racism and do the right thing, right? Then what happens is your kids have a better opportunity, right? Of doing great things in America. So one of the things you cannot get into a situation if there's hostility, people say, well, I don't want to go here because there's racial hostility. Well, get the hell out of there and let's do something else. Critical race theory would never say that. They would beat their heads up against a situation and would, and would never change. For example, at our, at our university, right, which is only 4% Blacks, if, if, if the perception is so bad, it is so racist, well, then let's leave. Nothing wrong with that. It's a free country. Let's go to Rice. <laughs> Let's go to, you know, and uh, we could all leave on one bus anyway. So my point is, I think that when they don't have the historical situation right, it becomes the flavor of the day. And remember, this has been very, very popular. And, and the other thing is uh, uh, you have to, to, to look at history. And when you look at history, you cannot destroy history. Right, and we and, and all of this is related. You know, we, we we try to destroy history. We try to, you know, we had honorable things happen in America where people believed in things, and and you know, we take down statues. And whereas in Germany, trying to build statues to to what they did to the to the to the Jewish population. So, professor, whenever whenever you have a bad conception of history, or whenever the flavor of the day, you know, you can discuss things, but you gotta have the right data. And they don't want to listen to the right data. So what we did with 1776, we didn't say much about them. We just we just provided an alternative to all of the data. Yeah, and this does sort of seem to spin them into this self-reinforcing loop where you know, they don't know the facts, they don't know the history, and then they they embrace this theory that's fairly explicitly anti-fact and anti-theory. Like empirical work is oppressive and. You know, the counter narratives need to be told whether they're true or not. So you sort of, they, they almost glamorize, it seems, not having the facts and not having the history. You know, you're right. You know, America's becoming a, 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 a country of whiners. That is, everybody wants to be a minority. Uh, if we look at what's happening at, at, at our place of residence, I think it is very interesting as I enter my 48th year as a professor here. I think it's interesting to look at the white population and how it has metamorphed and not wanting to be white, but something else. I think it's interesting how how, how behavior components have, have uh, been compared to racial components. I think if we look at all the stuff on uh, um, the uh, the LGTB uh, stuff, and you know, I want everybody listed. I want I want a list of the percentages that we have. I want to know how many how many white lesbians we have. I want to know how many. Uh, white gay men we have, and if they're going to list the black population in our institutional roles, I want that listed too, right? So my point is, uh, all of these things are happening, 
and, and you must debate them. You cannot say that it is not good to do this. And with critical race theory, we just say, okay, here are the facts. And, and, and you can't say that the facts are not there because the facts are there from the 1700s. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that, that, so much. If it, so much could be solved with data and facts if people would open up. <laughs> but yeah, and I, this brings us, so we have a, we have this, I don't know, it's like difficult conversation or challenging conversations on race or something that we're supposed to be doing. Have you, you, I don't know how much attention you pay to the crazy emails you get from the University of Texas, but I try to read them. And we're supposed to have these difficult conversations on race and like what some of the, um, some of the suggested readings are practically, I, I don't remember exactly. It's like why you should shut up if you're not from a marginalized group about these topics. And they're like telling us we shouldn't even be involved in the conversation, but if these issues are so important, everyone should be debating them. Everyone should be bringing their facts, right? But here's the deal. I've never been marginalized. And I'm from Southern Louisiana, okay? And here's the deal. We're almost 4% black, probably worrying about the black population. I mean, the probability of running into somebody black at University of Texas, oh, by the way, when the football team leaves, we might drop down to 3%. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is the probability of running into somebody black at the University of Texas, what's the probability, right? It's very, very low. So I think we should stop talking about race and think, talk about, about all of the other white minorities that have been defined by the government. And let's have conversations on them. We do not need to have a conversation on race at the University of Texas because the percentages are so small. Mm. The only issue we should ask is how do you increase the opportunity structure and how do you get the numbers up to 10%? That's, that's the only conversation I'm willing to have. Mm. You like that? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody is marginalized now. So please don't call me marginalized, you know, and don't call me diverse, right? And don't, it's, and don't call me a person of color. You know, my, I signed, I signed my pronouns, black, Negro, <laughs> and I can't say the next one. Because <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> I don't know how far. It's all about the data, you yeah. know. And, 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 and at our university, what we got to do is increase the numbers. Nothing else matters. And then we got to make sure that people are actually learning stuff here. <laughs> oh yeah, you got to you got to be. I mean, able to do that. I I mean love, yeah. this conversation, I'm not. This is not church. I'm not interested in you liking me. Uh, I'm interested in the opportunity. I mentioned yeah. walking away, and you know, I was one of the first to go to the uh, to, to 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 LSU Baton Rouge, and uh, you know, and I went to all the universities as a, you know, I played in the, played in the LSU band, and went to Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, you know, and I was interested in the opportunity. I, you know, I would I was never about church, and nobody had to accept me. And of course, we created organizations like uh, fraternities and sororities and other organizations so people could feel at home. Case closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you think we're? You think we got any chance of putting ourselves back on the right track here, or are we just going to keep focusing on? Because you know, I see more and more the sort of stuff you're describing about the way they're thinking. It's coming into more and more syllabuses. The university. It's getting harder and harder to do anything but like teach classes that go over and over this stuff. Are we, do we have an well, escape see, plan? I see two things. I see two trends that's happening. Right. With the black population, we had almost 3,000 black people who were accepted to Texas who didn't come. Mm -hmm. so, so black parents are voting with their feet, right? Uh, because they don't want their students, their, their children there. And the other, the other thing is this. I think that the idea, other trend is not being able to debate. When somebody say, 
if you are not from a marginalized group, when I tell you what, I'm black and I've never been marginalized, right? And if I did, I came back better than you would ever be. <laughs> yeah, yeah I got, your, I got your CV up. You don't look so marginalized on your CV. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I guess that's about right, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think, I think it's important to, to get the data. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm willing to have conversations with, uh, with the data but I'm willing to have a conversation about what we teach and the opportunity structure. And my biggest issue now is with my students is them accepting uh, what America is, our market economy, uh, our capitalist economy, and getting people to understand what the country has really, really been about. The country is about opportunities. This is not church, right? and, and what we do is we have all kinds of structures that allow people to, uh, you know, to do well. And, you know, when you go to college, you know, you, you, you're going to get people of like mindedness to study with. Uh, and then you're going to finish uh, and you can have lifetime friends. You know, all of my lifetime friends from LSU or Southern Whites, we go to games together. We pull for the Tigers together. We call each other together. And, and you know, and nobody said to us in college, ah, we have to like each other. Well, you know, I walked on the basketball team too. We played basketball together. We played in a band together. We, we, we lived together and we got to know each other through interaction because I could not take a course to tell me, all right, uh, uh, Richard Laurie is from, uh, is from Alabama. So you got to like him. Oh, well, <laughs> that, that, that's a shot at what they call inclusion. I don't know what that means. I, I have no sense of what that means. <laughs> I'm pretty sure inclusion means you're supposed to fire people who don't agree with critical race theory. But uh, yeah, that seems to be where they're going with that definition. Well, you know, you, you, you know, we lie, but it can get that way. But we, we have we have to scrub people un, un, unless they if they you know, I don't know what diversity means. I know what equal opportunity means, you know, but we're in a situation where, uh, you know, what is it? It's, to me, it's opportunity means numbers. You count the numbers. How many people do you have? That's the opportunity, right? I have no idea of what diverse means because they're not counting these diverse groups. I don't know how many, uh, how many gay people we have on campus. It is not in our institutional roles. And so we need to get back to the concept of equal opportunity. And by the way, uh, all whites have always been able to go to the University of Texas from its very, very inception, including, I might add, our Mexican population here in Texas. They've never been legally banned from the university. They made great contributions in the 1800s. They made great contributions to our national championship football team uh, during the the days of uh, segregation. And so it's important to get back, Professor, uh, to equal opportunity. And and that means teaching an opportunity, yes. I wanna hit on, so you mentioned and I think we're both in the very much in the like, join with capitalism and see what you can do field. I think that's an important point in some of this stuff is that the critical race theory, you know, it has this sort of sociological component, but it's also very anti-capitalist. So, right, so it, it's telling people don't bother, it's almost like it's telling people don't bother to go start a business because that's, you're gonna fail, right? Like the, the, the oh, like, yeah. Absolutely. You know, again, going back, I was director of IC Square, mm-hmm. the Institute of Constructive Capitalism, it was called, right? And, and George Kontrzebski started it back in the late 80s. And we did it because uh, we were not studying capitalism. 
And, and that is the institute that absolutely changed Austin, Texas, right? Uh, Dale started at IC Square. Uh, Jim Tressard and National Instruments started at IC Square. Uh, Evolutionary Technologies and the Incubator started at, at IC Square. And we taught and understood and studied the nature of capitalism, right? I mean, my chair is the J. Marion West Chair in Constructive Capitalism at the University of Texas. Where critical race theory does not give a consideration, right? Because they equate capitalism with oppression, okay? But I cannot think of another system that takes individual behavior and rewards that individual behavior. So when I, when I, in my book on entrepreneurship and self-help among black Americans, I talk about all of the blacks who became millionaires who were ex-slaves. <laughs> I talk about Booker D. Washington who left an endowed university at Tuskegee who was an ex-slave, right? And I talk about all of these patterns and how they built communities. Well, without market economies, right? Without capitalism, that's what the country has always been based on. And so what they do is they, they equate capitalism with the whole idea of slavery. They equate capitalism with these things, right? So what happened is capitalism moves, and you know, I can go back to 2000 BC and tell you about the beginning of capitalism. It was based on the relationship between technological change, job creation, and wealth creation. So you're exactly right. Uh, the university has to embrace right, modern, modern economics. And the university has to teach its students what the type of system that we have and move forward. Now, remember when I was in college, they had something called the hippies. They were really, really bad on this issue, right? <laughs> you don't remember the hippies. But I'm before, pretty sure I'm surrounded by what the, you know, the hippies <laughs> grew up. And now, right, now, now I is, can't turn around my, without hitting hippies, some. The hippies made it through. But we have to, as faculty members, we have to be diligent on, on market economies. And, 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 you know, I teach the entrepreneurship courses and, uh, and, and John Mackey has a, a Whole Foods, who the philosophy major here in Texas has a great book on conscious capitalism, right? We read that in my classes and talk about that, but you're exactly right. Uh, you can't have generations of Americans not understanding where job creation and wealth creation and opportunities come from. It does not come from uh, Washington, DC. Right? Yeah, and I hear, I hear more and more business school faculty who, who are talking about how when they when they, when the, the students finally show up to the business school, they're already, you know, they, they don't have any foundation in why the stuff matters or why yeah. is this, you know, they, they, you know, they've just been told for years, maybe even starting in high school, that this is this terrible thing. And uh, you know, our education school is making sure our students come in thinking that we're the bad guys. And here we're trying to sort of here, you know, here, take, you know, look, look at the facts, look at the history. This is how you prosper and then it's like we're just you know absolutely but thank god upstream with this stuff right, right. I, I don't have much in the first generation immigrants right mm -hmm. but but the american students are are it's, it's a whole different deal and uh i mean the the guilt the guilt that was put on white america over the last four years and how white america responded to it was just amazing to me mm -hmm. uh, you know i thought that they were not as strong as they should be on the history I thought that uh, um, uh, they, they took it away from opportunity structure uh, because you know, the country has changed over the years. We went through World War One and we went through World War II. Uh, on our campus, we had, we had uh, German students in, in, uh, that were from Germany. 
uh, Anna Hiss uh, Hall on campus. Her, her brother was in the German military. So we've gone through a lot, right? But you have to keep it on the whole idea of opportunity structure and, 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 and the future. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it does seem like building for the future rather than going and tearing down the past would be something a university might want to do. But <laughs> absolutely, you cannot I'm change. I'm not it. in charge, so. <laughs> Well, uh, okay, so the, there's one last thing, and this may be getting a little onto dangerous territory. If you do look at the facts, and if you do look at the data, I think, and this is not an area I'm an expert in, but I think you are, we, we see this sort of convergence of, you know, these marginalized groups with everyone else coming up at some point, and then we start to see breakdown and, you know, some separation than just this general decline and a lot of sort of, you know, uh, and it, it's not, you know, it's a bit maybe a rewidening, but also a sort of collapse of all sort of working class things on sort of things like intact families uh, and things like that. Do, do you see any relation to the growth of CRT and the sort of unwinding of some of this progress? Absolutely. So what happens is this, right? You have to you have to know your history. That is everybody, every group has a history and that's absolutely fine, right? And so as there's achievement in history, right? Especially by, by, by past generations, the question becomes how do you pass down the, um, the value structure? So what you're saying is you're seeing a breakdown in the highest economic structures, mm-hmm. right? Of America, right? You see, it, it, looks like, it looks like to me they're really willing to talk about that while everybody else is trying to come to America and, and, and let's say, uplift themselves, mm-hmm. right? So it might be that, that once they reach a certain point in time in history, they, they begin to think about things, but you have to really, really understand that it's okay to think about things, it's okay to debate things, right? So if you look at where it really is, for example, I don't know why you're debating it and teaching it in all white schools. I mean, I mean, <laughs> you know, people say, I said, what's the percentage of blacks you have? Well, why, why, why are you talking about it, right? But remember, to me, it's also a methodology, but you're right. When you look at the methodology, let's, let's look at it like this. Uh, since America, the first generation comes to do great things. The second generation is sent to college. The third generation struggles. <laughs> and the fourth generation, right, kind of falls apart. I think that's what you're saying. I think there's data. There are data to, uh, to show that. But in terms of the ideology, and, and uh, I don't think we've time, enough time has not paid for, for, to us to actually put the numbers to it, but certainly it is coming from, it looks like the upper echelons, quite unquote, of, of the population. I think that's what you're asking. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. And this is a stimulating conversation. I hope we can continue to have it. So thank you very thank you. much, and uh, hook them hard. I hope to see you soon.